Welcome to season three of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, Esports 101, Building a Business. Over the past year, we've talked with many esports professionals around the world. Our audience knows how to play games, and now they are eager to level up their skills in the business arena. This season aims to equip every esports entrepreneur with practical and useful knowledge to achieve success. Think of it as a mini course, Esports 101. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, where we talk about how esports can create jobs anywhere in the world. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Now, in season one, we talked about jobs. In season two, we talked about follow the money. We talked about investment. We talked about sponsorship. And now in season three, we're talking more about how to build a business, esports 101. Today, I'm really excited to have back Elliot Areskovic. <laughs> Hopefully, I didn't, didn't mangle the name too, too much there. Um, he's, the, he's the executive co-director of the United States Esports Association and an esport consultant. And we're going to hear what he has been up to. Hey there, Elliot. Welcome. Hey. So could you, um, to start out here, could you talk a little bit about your background? We always ask people, you know, how did you get started in gaming and esports? Oh, gaming's a whole nother story. Um, yeah, I mean, I never really got involved in um, very competitive games. So my introduction to gaming was always with, uh, I think, Paradox Games. so grand strategy. Um, and then a little after that, moved into like RTS which is a little more competitive, but not very. Um, and then I think my my introduction to esports was even less exciting. Um, I got involved because a friend uh, was in an entrepreneurship competition. Uh, he called me up one night and he said, Elliot, I go, what? He goes, I need you to make up some numbers for me. I go, I can do that. <laughs> I'm like, what do you what do you need me to make up numbers for? He's like, just, just financial. So I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Uh, and, and then he got second place. So I suppose I was good enough. Um, and then after that, you know, uh, he was pitching an esports lounge. Uh, so we started talking to people, you know, you get involved in the amateur community, you find some nonprofits, then you're off to the races and now we're here. So, um, how did it, was he able to create the esports? Uh, oh, venue? no. Um, so it's a very particular story, so I won't get too deep into it, but basically, um, the venture capital community in Ohio, which I'm in Cleveland, um, the venture capital community here is very small compared to a lot of other states, uh, even though we do have a lot of wealth. Uh, a lot of it's caught up in like manufacturing. Um, and I, I mean the very traditional, you know, advanced manufacturing is a very new thing for us, um, as well as healthcare. So when they look at tech products, if it's not an enterprise product, they're not too interested. And though we do have a very large real estate industry, they don't really understand what an esports lounge is and they just see it as a restaurant, which you know, no one really wants to invest in that unless you're a restaurateur. Um, so we ended up talking to the one VC, uh, in Ohio who was into it. Um, and long story short, the, the fund that we would have been asking for money for never got raised. Uh, so it just kind of died very, uh, unceremoniously. And we only found that out like two years afterwards about why the conversation just ended. Um, so sadly, no. It's one of the things in talking to some uh, VC people in season two. One of the things that's really curious to understand is that they're they're out there raising money. It's not like they've got this giant bank account that they're just handing money out. It's a whole. It, it's a numbers game to them. They're look, 
they've got to go for good investments, but they also have to figure out which, where they can raise cash to be able to do that. So it's, it's what I found is it's a little more complicated than sometimes I think of it. Yeah. Um, so this, <laughs> the reason the fund never got raised actually had nothing to do with their ability to raise it. They could have raised it and it, it would have been, uh, you know, not too small. Uh, it was just personal reasons for the people involved. So, you know, life happens and then that interferes with venture capital, apparently. Yes. Yes. Among other things. I did want to yeah. ask you though, can you started talking about it a little bit, but I'm really interested in having you talk a little bit about Cleveland because yeah. our audience is international and it's always, I mean, we, we had a um, Shirley McFall a couple of weeks, a couple uh weeks ago was here from the, from Puerto Rico. And so, you know, we were able to explain a little bit more about you know, where Puerto Rico is. And so if you could explain a little bit about Cleveland and that part of the, uh, uh, of the country as compared to other parts of the United States. Yeah. Um, I mean, the story of Cleveland started out not very interesting and then it peaked and then now we're here. Um, so Cleveland was founded in, I think, 1796. Um, now Cleveland was founded when, uh, Ohio didn't even exist. This was the Northwest. I mean, it wasn't even the Northwest Territory. I don't know what it was. Uh, it was land owned by Connecticut. Uh, and then Connecticut sent over a bunch of uh, people, one of which his name was Moses Cleveland. Um, spelled differently. He had an A in his name. Um, he came over with his own uh, group to scope out the land. He did that. Uh, and then they left. And then Cleveland just emerged from that. Um, the, the area that they had was known as the Western Reserve. Um, so when the country started to, so when Congress basically consolidated all of the new land um, that they had gotten uh, up to the Mississippi, um, they, you know, all of the, all of the original colonies had claims to that land. So they had to do a lot of negotiating. Connecticut, you know, gave it up. Um, but during that time, people from Connecticut started to come over and it, it, it started to develop to look a lot like uh, New England. Uh, eventually, that became the part of the Northwest Territory, which eventually becomes Ohio. Um, up until, you know, the 1900s, Cleveland wasn't doing anything too interesting that wasn't happening in the rest of the country. Um, and then around the 1900s, it boomed. Um, a lot of it had to do with the steel and coal trades, but just anything manufacturing related. Um, so the port of Cleveland is right in the middle of, uh, the Atlantic and then the furthest reaches, uh, of the Great Lakes. So if you're coming in and doing trade, Cleveland is likely going to be your, your port, um, or one of them. There are many. So we're positioned in a very good spot. We're also positioned pretty equidistant between Chicago and New York. So we benefit a lot from the, the business that they're doing. And when the crime families ran all of the cities, uh, we were the central meeting place. So we had our own little crime family, uh, in addition to all of the licit business. Uh, but because of all of the big stuff that was happening in the 1900s, eventually we were the wealthiest city, you know, in the country and then in the world by extension, um, for a very small amount of time. Um, and then around the 1960s, 1950s, coincidentally, when the crime started to get cleaned up and the city started to become more, uh, legitimately run, uh, everyone started leaving and that coincides with, uh, partly with white flight, but then we also have our own issues as well. Once it started to decline, it never really 
pick back up. And then Great Recession happens. Uh, and then most recently, the pandemic. So it's been on the, on the decline. But because of the stuff that was happening in the, the 1900s, there's a lot of wealth here. Um, so it's basically what you'd look at for a traditional, you know, East Coast major city, just smaller. So we're, we're Chicago light, basically. And did you grow up there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm in my, basically my entire family lives on this street, uh, or near to it. So very, uh, very local. No, that's great. That's great. So yeah, everyone in California, we all came from somewhere else. Mm. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> there's, there's no one that, that lives on the same street where they, they, uh, they grew up on. What's, what's the, yeah. um, what's the gaming world like in Cleveland? <laughs> so this gets into the socioeconomic situation. Um, as I was, you know, uh, referencing Cleveland did decline. Uh, and right now there are a lot of things that are not fantastic. Um, there's, I mean, the, the, the historical discrimination, the present discrimination as well, but there's the historical discrimination that kind of shaped the geo, uh, economic landscape has really shaped what socio, like social life just looks like and gaming being a more affluent activity. It's not always the thing that people have access to. Um, so I think the per capita, and this is going to be outdated, but it might still be accurate. Um, the last time I checked from a couple of years ago, the per capita was like $18,000 and the per household was about 20, which is not even vaguely enough to live on. Uh, even though obviously cost of living is lower here than a lot of other places. Uh, though it is increasing, which doesn't bode well. Um, so people's access to, you know, the, the, um, physical infrastructure technology, obviously included, but physical spaces too, uh, as well as the broadband access that you would need to be able to do at least competitive games. And obviously the earlier generations of gaming were not as affected by this, so the prices were higher. Um, we don't have, you know, a dedicated, a, a robust dedicated infrastructure for it. So if you're participating in gaming, you know, unless your family can afford it, you're probably doing it through your school or you're doing it through, you know, a rec center that happens to be forward looking. Maybe you're using a library's computer if they're going to let you. It's a lot don't. Um, and as a result of all of the other factors that have shaped life here, um, we haven't really developed an esports economy and we have a very small uh, game dev space. So it's a lot of indie developers, not very well organized, not very well capitalized. You know, so it's rough. In esports, it's a little worse um, because you, you know, we're competing against uh, cities and countries that have a dedicated VC infrastructure to support this kind of stuff. Um, so, competitively to other countries, we vastly, or to other cities, we vastly underperform. I mean, regionally, I think we're doing pretty okay. I wouldn't say that there's a strong gaming culture, but it's no different than any other you know, American city. So people play video games, but the extent to which that expands into something bigger, you know, isn't phenomenal. Are there, are there, this is probably my, my ignorance. Are there, are there some large, um, uh, colleges and universities in so, the area? <laughs> this is another fun thing about Ohio. Ohio has an insanely large university population. 
especially Northeast Ohio, especially Cleveland. So within the area, we have like 10 to 20 different universities. Wow. I mean, even just from where I am right now, there's Cleveland State, which is our public university, the only four-year in the county. Um, there's Tri-C, which is the community college, the only one in the county. There are, I want to say, three or four different privately owned uh, or, uh, universities that have been around for you know, years. All religious, which is another thing about uh, Cleveland. A lot of the private uh, schools are just are religious. That started to change um, because of the charter schools, but still predominantly religious, uh, though colleges don't do that as strongly. Um, and then just regionally as well, uh, there are four, I think four, uh, different major uh, public universities. No, three. So Cleveland, Youngstown, and Akron. Uh, those are with all are all within driving distance of each other, uh, and they sometimes work together. So you, we do have some programs where you hop between campuses, um, and then obviously every county is going to have its own community colleges. They'll have their own uh, career uh, education centers. So we have more than we're supposed to, given the population, which is uh, good. But exactly, it's, it's difficult to work with. Yes. Yes. Yes, it can be. Hey, we're going to talk a little bit more about esports in particular here. I, I think it's really interesting, and I think it's really good for people to hear about different parts of the U.S. Because I talk to people about California because that's what I know, and then and then you know we talk to some people you know maybe back east, but you know it's 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 a very uh, West Coast kind of story, and a lot of it is just because that's where I'm familiar with things happening. So it's always good to hear what's going on in other parts of the world and to let other people around the world realize there's something outside of of california in the united yeah. states because we don't always let that story get get out there very much i want to talk a little bit about some of the things you're doing in esports now the united states esports association you're, you're the founder one of the founders of that is that right uh sort of but not really um so the organization was founded in 2018 uh the person who founded it is still involved um, but 2020 is when the organization kind of got like actually started and things started to move. That's when I came on. So what did, what does the organization do? So the organization was originally founded, uh, to mirror what the sports federations and associations do, uh, with a particular focus on amateur development for esports. Um, 2020, we were still doing that. We joined the global esports federation in 2020, uh, as the U S member, uh, we had that for two years and then we left, uh, like March, 2022, I think, um, towards the mid and end of 2021, um, after trying to have the amateur development conversation and make things move, I said, you know what, maybe we should do something else. Um, cause this isn't going to work, uh, at least the way that we were trying to do it. Um, with the the resources we had, which is the key part, we we don't we did not have resources, so it was very strange. Um, I said, okay, well, you know, we are a five hundred one c three, so we have you know the the tax basis to do a lot of interesting things that you can't get away with with for profits. We're also in a position where we're not, you know, necessarily competing with anyone. And if you ask the IRS, we don't compete with anyone. That's the point. Um, so. Well, we, again, we also needed, you know, to 
provide for a sustainable uh, like foundation within the organization. So we needed access to some sort of money. Uh, and at the time, even though investment in esports was soaring globally, as well as obviously in the U.S. in particular, um, donations to 501c3s is not something that people are looking into uh, unless they have a particular reason to. And some people do, but that wasn't the case for us. So I said, all right, well, you know, you have organizations that are think tanks, but they don't really do anything. Um, you have trade associations, but we're not that. Um, and there's a lot of different organizations that have very niche interests. What if we just took, you know, all of the things that they do, made them, you know, fit within the 501c3. Um, so for people who don't know, just like a normal charity, nothing special. Um, and make it so that it is obviously taking traditional things that these nonprofits would have done and focused on. So environmental stuff, national security uh, concerns put it into the esports context um, and then put an American flavoring on it. And that's what we went with. So we've been doing that. Um, the two programs we have that are most developed now, which kind of characterize the organization, one is called Esports Eco, um, which is through... Uh, so part of our work with uh, UN Climate Change, they have two different programs that we're involved in. Um, and then we have a new program uh, which is funded through uh, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security um, called the National Esports Honor Society, where we're working with colleges to ensure that they're giving holistic programming to their students, regardless of where they're, you know, siloing them within the university. Yeah, can you uh, talk a, a little bit more about, first about the um, the environmental um, or, um, work that you're doing? Because yeah. we, 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 don't, we don't talk to people that are doing that often enough out here. There's not many people who are doing it. Well, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of what I was, where I was leading there. So can you explain a little bit in more, a little more detail why it's important to do that and how esports in particular (laughs) can, can, um, can address it sit in a different yeah. way than maybe some other organizations. It's like, yeah, oh, we, yeah. We, yeah, we don't, we don't have four days here. So it's like, I know that's, oh, no, of course. that's a big question, but. So, um, traditional sports, you know, if you want to play soccer, you can go play soccer. If you want to play American football, you can go do that. Not an issue. You don't need electricity. You don't need anything. You need a ball, um, at the very least. Uh, and esports isn't like that. Esports, if you want to, if you, if you want to play a video game, you need electricity in addition to the technology. The technology is its whole other thing. I won't even touch it. You know, rare earth metals are, are difficult to work with. I don't understand, you know, geology to the degree that you would need to for that. But I know that if we're using a lot of electricity, that's not good for the environment. Um, and the impact that, uh, gaming computers have uh, on the environment, obviously indirectly, but the, the impact that gaming computers have because of the increased power draw that they have, which is like six to eight times higher than a normal office computer, is substantial when you think about how many people participate in esports who have gaming computers and who probably are staying at the cutting edge of the technology within the computer. Um, so they are actually having a higher power draw than the rest of the of the, the average. If you have an industry that is built like that, we assume that that's the basic activity. Um, you know, you're going to have six to eight times, you know, higher emissions than in a, a similar industry 
that is just using computers. Now, the surrounding infrastructure, so buildings and, uh, I mean, just in-person events and whatnot, merchandising, is not as sophisticated as it, as it is in sports. So we do benefit from that because we do not have as, as big of an issue with suppliers. But that's changing. Obviously, there's more people. Uh, the, the electricity is really the biggest concern. Um, in addition to the hardware, which I don't know enough about to, to talk about. So, so the- if we, if we just look at like the, so if we take the new zoo numbers, so from 2022, the actual cost of, uh, east, like the, the cost to remove, um, esports ecological harm through just its carbon emissions is in the billions. That vastly exceeds the profit uh, or just the the revenue of the industry. So we're having, you know, a thousand, double digit thousand percent uh, harm given even what we can actually pay for. And removal technology isn't even able to do that yet. So we're, you know, we're, we're basing this off of technology that we don't have. Um, and if we keep doing this and the industry keeps expanding, uh, it's not going to be good. So, that. so yeah, the question, that, the naive question for me is, is so what do we do? So uh, what, what are the kinds of things that can be done to move in, in that direction? Do you yeah. think? Because um, cause I, I also take it that you're not the kind of person that you're sitting there saying, well, we're really screwed. It's like, it's like, <laughs> no, you're, you're trying to come up with ways to be less screwed. Is that, is that a term? I, uh, I try to do that. <laughs> um, when, when you look at the numbers, it gets very depressing. Yes. Um, the numbers are not good, but luckily esports compared to other industries is very small. And the percent of, of the sectors that we could fall in is also very small. So cars, you know, 22, 25% of total emissions. That's a much bigger issue, but I don't work in cars. So here we are. Um, I think the, the inescapable problem with esports is that you have to use electricity. So the idea that we could somehow reduce that is absurd because at the end of the day, we're not able to do esports. So what we have to do is based around offsetting and supporting the development and deployment of technologies that actually can remove um, the different emissions. Now, carbon being the first of many, there are at least six or eight different uh, greenhouse gases that are all differently bad, but they're all bad. Carbon, obviously, being the the one that has the best PR. Um, so I think that we need to be putting in place an infrastructure one that even starts to report all of this, and you know, bare minimum, just estimates. We don't need it to be accurate. We need it to be in the ballpark. And if it's not in the ballpark, it needs to be sort of what is happening, so we can get towards in the ballpark and then get towards accurate. Once we have an understanding of what the actual emission uh, potential, or I guess what the actual emissions are, then we can start to say, okay, if you're running a lounge, you should probably be donating towards offsets, um, which are cheaper than removal. And again, removal is not a, a, a well, uh, founded technology with, there's also minimal deployment. Start with offsets. They're plentiful. Difficulty there is offsets are usually sketchy. Um, and they don't really do what they're branded to do. Um, but something is better than nothing. Uh, and then as we start to increase buy-in, you can move towards removal, which there are companies that'll do it. Um, the issue with this solution, 
that's not, you know, I haven't thought about this too much that we definitely need to. Um, the, the issue that is going to be inescapable is, uh, the degree to which the solution is proximal. So like if you're running a lounge in one place, you're not generating your own electricity. You're getting electricity from somewhere else. And that is having an impact more directly on where it's being generated as opposed to where you are. So even though one community in Cleveland, you know, is using electricity, it isn't necessarily being generated here. So the harms that are most direct can't actually be solved in Cleveland, even though if you took a proximal approach, you'd probably want to solve it in Cleveland. So we do need a solution for that. We're not even close to being there yet. Uh, and when you talk about removal, that becomes an even bigger issue uh, because obviously the companies that deploy that kind of technology, if you're not you know, a, a, a manufacturer yourself, are doing it in their own locations. But the atmosphere is everywhere. So theoretically, it's not that big of an issue, but you know, there are different concerns to take into consideration. Well, one of the things I like hearing is just it, people are thinking about it. Because just, just, just coming up with some awareness and some, um, some feeling about, you know, what, what the, um, what the scope of things are. Uh, I grew up in Wyoming and that's the, the biggest, one of the biggest coal producing states, you know, ever. And, you know, we'd have these huge coal fired, uh, uh, power plants all over it, which are great for the local community as far as the number of jobs. But it was just like, it just wasn't the best, you know, the best. Long-term investment, but but it's like yeah, the impact there is what is, was really huge. I mean, even just public health, you know, a lot dirtier than electricity. Yes, yes. So that's the other thing I want to talk about um, is when you're talking about the doing things with the homeland security, hmm. because I think that's one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you in particular about because you're doing things that other people aren't doing. So so it's like I, that's why I, I mean for me it, it, I get to I get to learn about. Different things that that I wouldn't have thought about if I'm talking to the next, um, you know, esports entrepreneur entrepreneur that's you know building a team somewhere. It's like you know, you're doing some some things that are, are a little different. And when we talked earlier about your uh, your work with the um, homeland security, and it's just like I just thought that was really fascinating from all kinds of viewpoints. Because I'll let you talk in a minute. Uh, one of the things is that one of the stories that I want to tell here is that think outside the box. It's because people people are thinking, oh, there's no money around. Well, it's like, well, maybe you can think outside the box, and maybe there 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 are some piles of money somewhere else. So, if you could describe what it is you're doing there, that would be really great. Oh yeah, no, I love talking about it. Um, so, the uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security um, has a grant program. They have a series that are in the same category. Um, they have a grant program called Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention. Um, that program was founded in 2020, based out of a program from 2016. Um, the focus is targeted violence and terrorism prevention. Um, but they take a public health approach to it. So, you know, really anything, you know, could be good um, for what they're focused on. If, if you think about, like, uh, this is obviously language that, that, that they use and that the community uses. So, like, if someone commits a hate crime, that was more than likely targeted violence. Now, it could be an indiscriminate hate crime, which is a different thing, but let's assume it isn't. Um, if you're going out and committing crimes against groups of people, probably in the ballpark. If you're doing actual terrorism, that would 100% be there, though 
um, obviously definitions again are going to be a concern. So back to the public health part, um, they describe it sort of on three, uh, three stages. So the pathway from ra- to radicalization and then to mobilization. So at the far beginning stage, you're just a person who has some set of protective factors and some set of risk factors. Um, so you have a, you, you have a personal situation. It could be bad. It could be good. Who knows? You know, but it, you know, the situation. The second step is you've been radicalized to some sort of ideology. Um, that is not, and then there are obviously other, the, 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 the law plays a, a role in here as well, which makes the work a little difficult, but the radicalization part is not illegal, but it's also not necessarily good. So if you're radicalized to an ideology, which a lot of people are, um, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to do anything about it. That's bad. Doesn't mean you're going to be violent, but you have some radical belief, uh, or set of beliefs or even a framework about the world, uh, which would be a more broader version. And then the final step, which is illegal is mobilization. So you're actually doing something about it. That's illegal. Um, committing crimes would be the, the simplest thing, usually violent. So at the far, uh, at the far beginning point of it, these are people out in society, middle part, also people out in society, but they probably are also involved in niche parts of society. And then the further, the, the furthest away part, this is usually the prison population or people who are out of the prison population, but were in it at one point. So when it comes to, uh, esports, we, I think anecdotally, uh, anyone who's been in the amateur community long enough can tell you that crimes happen. White collar, but sometimes blue, usually white. Um, people steal money. People commit various types of fraud. It's a lie. Um, they'll do other things that are not good. That kind of an environment is not good for anybody. Um, much less the, the people who are actually victims of that. Um, so being within that environment and, and having that sort of be the like necessary prereq to doing esports is not good because you're developing a, a, a framework for the world that is built around crime where you have to commit something that is illegal in order to stay in the community and then also to like not get pushed out competitively. Um, when you talk about colleges, they obviously don't have that direct connection, but these are people that have been there before. They've done amateur esports. Maybe they're still doing amateur esports. When you go into the college setting, you now have to reckon with the particular problems there. So Title IX violations, which are an unsolved problem, uh, in addition to uh, sexual violence. Being... Could, you, could you describe what Title IX means? Oh, yeah. I totally forget. This is not necessarily people who know. Um, <laughs> Title IX uh, of the Education Amendments Act uh, is what the, the, the current one is. Basically, it's just non-discrimination. It's, a, it's part of a larger group of civil rights uh, things in the U.S., all of them built around non-discrimination. The idea for Title IX being that if you're going to offer athletic programming to men, you also have to offer athletic programming to women, and they have to be equal. So if you have a women's basketball team and a men's basketball team, you can't just give more money to the men's team because you want to, um, or you can't intentionally you know, disadvantage the women's team just because you don't, you know, just because you want to. Um, or cause you actually hate women. Any reason. Um, now <laughs> title nine within traditional athletics, as I said, is an unsolved problem. Um, the enforcement of it is not always great. Um, but it is a, a legal framework and there is a, there are, there are laws and there are punishments. Um, uh, 
within esports, because these are sometimes they're under athletics, so they're directly related to that kind of uh, a thing. Sometimes they're not. <coughs> They'll be under, you know, student affairs, or it'll just be its own club, which is going to be regulated within the university differently. Sometimes it's not actually a uh, public university, so the rules they have to follow are going to be different. Regardless, you're now, you know, uh, you are now in the proximity of other risk factors that you wouldn't have been in proximity of before. So as I said, again, sexual violence on campuses, still a problem. Um, Title IX, so just discrimination in a general sense, still a problem. When you have an esports program that is isolated from the rest of the university, so as in the case of athletics for most universities, it's a separate silo. It does its own thing. There might be touch points for the rest of the university, but they're not necessarily well utilized. So when you have that environment and you're drawing people to the university specifically for esports, and we know that the people who are attracted to esports at their colleges wouldn't have gone to college otherwise, by and large. So they're probably not familiar with college in general. They don't know what they should be doing. They don't know how to get the best you know, benefits out of it. Might also be taking on a significant amount of debt. Um, which is obviously unique to the U.S. That's all not good. And it's positioning people to fail in society at the worst part or just struggle. And if you have a framework that is bad, then you're going to resort to bad behavior, which even if you're not doing crimes, you know, being a bad person isn't a good thing and it makes for a bad society. So the program directly targets the college space specifically for the colleges that are not doing enough to um, give enough support to their students. So we have largely men, which is also largely men, largely white within the U.S., also part of a a larger uh, national security concerns um, because of white supremacy and uh, white-based ideologies. (coughs) The program says, okay, (coughs) you can do your competitive programming. That's fine. Not an issue. But you should also do professional development. And this can be integrated into the program. So you should do professional development. You should be helping people become civically and uh, community engaged so that they're socialized to the rest of the world around them. You should be helping them become socialized to their peers and to the people older and younger than them so that they have a sense of connection to things. And then finally, they should have some sense of uh, media and information literacy. So you should be able to navigate the world in a way that makes sense and that actually helps you make good decisions based on what you're given uh, and so that you're not, you know, persuaded into something that if you had, you know, full information that you would have regretted uh, doing. What do some of these programs look like? For the grant program or for what we're doing? For, for what you're doing there when you're talking ah. about, you know, uh, I understand your, your framework of, of uh, talking about wanting to support students that may not yeah. have come in with the same kind of support that that others might have had coming in. One of, the, one of the things you said I thought was really interesting was that a lot of people who come to college to go to, uh, to play esports would not have gone to college without it. Mm-hmm. And, and that I, to me, that's an interesting concept. I never really thought of, I always kind of thought, well, no, they're probably, you know, probably smart people that would have gone to college anyway. But, but, when you're addressing those kinds of needs out there, what what are the specific programs that you're putting together look like? Um, so we <laughs> haven't implemented it yet. That comes in the next academic year. Um, 
for each of the different components. So the mentorship stuff is just mentoring, you know, setting, hooking students up with other people within their programs and then making connections to the industry. Uh, and then if there's an opportunity to do it to people who are younger than them in the local community, doing that as well. Um, we're, we're shifting the way we're piloting the program, which is making this a little more difficult. Uh, also making the specific answers a little vague, but that's what it is. It's mentorship. Um, media and information literacy is based out of a, a, um, negotiation competition. So they do these in law schools all the time, um, for different areas, but it's not that common that people outside of law would be participating in them usually because they're not allowed to. Um, but if you want to do anything in the business of esports, like negotiating is part of it. Uh, and it offers students, uh, an opportunity to actually gain media and information literacy skills without knowing that that's what they're doing, which is good because we're teaching them a valuable skill, obviously connected to the purpose of the program. But when they build the connections in their brain and they start to, you know, build a sense of self around that, they're not thinking, oh, this is a thing I was taught. You know, I should do it because I'm, you know, I don't want to commit crimes or something. It's, oh, if I want to succeed in esports, this is what I have to do. Um, so it's directly countering, obviously, the bad stuff that happens, but then setting them up with a good framework, you know, that allows them to, to think critically and act responsibly. Um, so there's that. Uh, for the community and civic engagement part, um, we're modeling it off of uh, the NHS, <laughs> the National Honor Society, which is a high school program in the U.S. Um, that is a very locally based program. So the uh, individual high schools are given significant latitude to do whatever they want, which is good on the one hand, bad on the other. Um, for this program, uh, the community and civic engagement part, basically all I'm interested in is that your college program is doing something in the local community. Uh, as, as long as it's a community activity, I'm okay with it. Um, it could also be civic. So if you, uh, not necessarily political, I think is the other uh, yes. point here. So we're not pushing you know, ideology, just participate in democratic processes. Um, so for example, if you wanted to go, uh, volunteer on election night with your board of elections, totally legitimate, you know, I'm very happy that you're doing that. That could, you know, be something you do for the program or you do more traditional volunteering. So you want to go volunteer to pick up garbage. Great. Fantastic. Uh, work with, uh, students in your local community. Also a good one. The only caveat is that it has to actually involve esports. Obviously, obviously in the civic sense, that is excluded. You know, we can't do esports in elections. Um, but if you want to, you know, organize a charity competition through your program that benefits some local charity, great. You know, you're still doing esports. Um, but ultimately the, the benefit of it is, uh, to something else. And you're still gaining a sense of, you know, connection to the local community, which is good for a lot of different reasons, um, as well as awareness of social issues, which is a big one that the literature points out. The final one is professional development. Uh, so that has two different parts. One is creating a toolkit, uh, I guess a series of toolkits, but one toolkit at the minimum for career services so that when they're working also with like individual advisors within the university, but specifically for career services, where when they're working with someone who is very interested in esports uh, and really sees their reason for being there or for being in the university as that, 
they can offer them um, good advice on how to actually do their university career, but then also to um, pursue professional development opportunities. So internships that actually benefit you both in esports, but as well as outside of it, so that you're not just gaining a robust esports resume that the traditional world is going to look at and laugh at, which all too often happens, uh, which I don't think is good. Um, and, then, and then the other part uh, is uh, career and internship fairs. So just organizing, you know, employers who maybe wouldn't have been open to working with people who have a very good esports resume, but don't have a good traditional resume, um, putting them in the same room, you know, making sure that students are exposed to them and working with students or working with career services who can work with the students um, to make sure that they're, they're able to, you know, uh, present themselves in a way that's going to benefit them, obviously, so they can get a job. One of the things that we're, when we've talked to other educators in the past here, we talked to Nick Turner, for example, in the UK, hmm. and he was talking about some interesting, because we had a great conversation because we were able to talk to the, the, the esports team control that is actually, you know, he helped put together and the guys on there are just doing some amazing things. But, but the piece of it that, that came through that I hadn't really thought through maybe so much was like, how is this going to help them in the future? It's like, okay, they, they're, you know, they created this control, they created this team and they're going out doing these great things and they're fun and everything. It's like, but in the long run, you know, how does it work? So it kind of made me picture it a little bit there. I want to move on here because otherwise we'll, <laughs> we will run out of time here. But, um, one of the things, and I'm not asking for real real numbers, but okay. in, in going for grants like this from in this case, I mean, obviously it's not something that's going to work for everyone around the world yeah. to get grants from the U.S. government. Although you can get, I put my plug in here, there are grants from U.S. embassies in almost every embassy around the world. And the cycle goes different time periods. But if you're interested, let us know because we get some contacts. Uh, I just think that that could be a great source of information. <clears throat> a great source of potential revenue out there. But what, what, uh, how lucrative is this for organizations like yours? I mean, is it, um, is it, is it a good way to make money to support the organization? Um, to support the organization? Yes. To make money? No. Um, that's what the, I want to hear. The reason, yeah, the reason is because if you're using, and I'm not a lawyer and I've also, I'll be honest, I screwed this up a lot. Um, so I rely on the government being very forgiving. Um, but, um, for grants, you're not allowed to profit off of it. So basically the, and there might be alternative rules and you can have arrangements with the department. Generally, um, if you're getting a grant, it's probably going to be a reimbursement. Um, and if it's not, you're not just getting money. So you have to say, Hey, you know, here's what we're going to spend money on. Spent the money. Can we please have the money back? Um, so at most you're breaking even. Um, and then of course, if you have uh, some other way to, to bring money in based on that, fantastic. But from that money on its own, no, it's not lucrative at all because we're literally breaking even. Um, but you know, we, because it's a 501c3, the ability for me to say, Hey, you know, I'm going to do work on this grant. We're going to have some sort of compensation as part of that. That then gets reimbursed, goes to me, and then pops on back through a donation from me to the to the organization. Obviously, I have to pay taxes on it because that was income for me. Um, but it does mean that I'm able to capitalize, you know, our nonprofit to a degree that we were not able to do before, just because we now have an ability to 
spend money that we wouldn't have been able to spend uh, previously. So obviously the rules make this all very difficult. And there's a lot of paperwork. Uh, it's not always fun, but it is an opportunity. You know, if you do have some amount of money that you can use, plus like a program that works, you know, especially <laughs> within yes, that, 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 the, the, the performance that, important that's part. An, yeah, it's like, okay, this is not a, a giant pool of money that the government is yeah. really like throwing out there. To I mean, sometimes it is. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's not uh it's not well, common that that's what it is. So are though. you are you uh, are you getting good at writing grants? I mean, I've done it a couple times. Um the first one I did was the one that got funded. So wow. that was a combination wow. of being very lucky uh, and being in the the right place at the right time. Um oh, that, that's amazing. Time. You know, cuz one of the things I think and one of the reasons I wanted to tell the story here was because people should just be looking for where there could be money. And I think when, once you start looking into U.S. government grants, I mean, if you're, if you're in the United States in particular, it's like there's all kinds of, of opportunities out there because, because you, you don't need, you know, millions and millions of dollars. But if you get like $50,000 to, to run your organization for a year, I can make a huge difference. So to, to some people. So it's like, Hey, you know, go out there and start, start doing some research. And there's probably organizations. Are there organizations where, okay, let's say if someone's out there and they're like, hey, sounds great. I'm, I'm going to go get some free government money um, mm. out there. How can I learn how to access it? Are there groups? Is there training out there that you're aware of? I mean, I, the feeling I get from you is you learn the hard way. You learn by, yeah. do, by doing it. And so I'm learning you, the hard way. Maybe you want the next guy to go through the same thing. It's an active process, but our, I very much would not want the next person to, to go through that because here's the, here's the reality of the situation. Um, is it, if you, you know, let's, let's imagine you have a program and you have the connections to make it work actually competent. And, you know, the, the government says, Hey, we have this program and we're, we're offering X amount of money. You're able to put the thing in and it all works out for you. Reality is, and this is not what you get in other like nonprofit work or even for-profit work is if you screw up, you probably broke a law at some point. Um, because for, for the government, when they have a policy, it's usually a law. Now there's good reason, you know, and we need to obviously have a government that protects its own interests because that isn't what always happens. And it's not uncommon for people to exploit the government, but that is an extra I don't want to call it an inconvenience, but it is a burden. Um, so, you know, if you fill out a form incorrectly, that's not a good thing. Um, whereas, you know, in like other work, it's probably not that big of a deal as long as you fix it. Um, but no, I, you know, at the end of the day, uh, having access to legal counsel is probably the best one. Obviously someone who knows what, what you're doing. Um, but then also knows the specific areas that you're working in. Um, both within the government and then outside of it. Um, the government, the U.S. government is difficult for a lot of reasons. Um, one of them is that every department kind of does their own thing. Um, and they even have like interagency people who specifically just work between agencies, uh, which is a hilarious thing to have to hear. Uh, and I, you hear it a lot where, the, uh, so for DHS, for example, they'll be like, oh yeah, this center has a partnership with this other center. But it's it's the same department, so it's just bizarre how it works. 
But a lot of the different um, grant issuing agencies do have their own uh, like training materials and whatnot, mm-hmm. and then just other supports. So if they're and and the 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 benefit of them varies and the accessibility varies. Um, but for a lot of the more active groups, they'll have that sort of thing on the website. Now they, they can't always tell you, you know, here's what you need to do X, Y, and Z do it. Um, Cause that would also be illegal at some point. Um, but they usually have some sort of supports. I mean, the, the most reliable thing obviously is just going to be working with a lawyer. Yes. Yes. Now, for grants that you're aware of, is it pretty much a one-time grant or is it something <laughs> that you can go kind of go, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I get a nerve here. Uh, or is it something like, okay, is it something that if you're, if you're a multi-year, you want to have a multi-year program, is that, sure. is that an option or is it kind of like uh, one shot and done? Depends. Um, so the, the federal government has what's called the code of federal regulations. Uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, part of that is the uh, federal procurement standards that lays out the basis for that every department has to follow. Now, the, the what makes it extremely frustrating to work with is that the federal government can basically do generally do whatever it wants uh, as long as it you know has a reason. Sometimes, sometimes literally, it is get their permission and you can do it. Um, which is annoying, but that's what it is. So um, there are grant programs that do offer funding uh, for the same program multiple years. There are other programs that don't do that. Now, does that mean that you can't have the same basic program and resubmit it, you know, for that same grant? Not necessarily. If you have something different, that is what you're actually proposing, even though it's based in the same program, that could be different enough, you know, for them to see a reason to fund it. So for the grant that we have in particular, it is essentially seed funding, you know, to build yes, these yes. community-based programs so that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, the U.S. Department of Defense is has a lot of money. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has significantly less money. Um does that mean that the issues that uh, Homeland Security are looking to address are any less important? No, it just means they have less money. So for this program in particular, if it were properly funded by Congress, it would probably have like hundreds of millions of dollars per year because we need you know people on the ground throughout the country who are working within communities who aren't looking to spy for the government, who just actually want to help people. Um, and this would be the way to do it. But all that being said, um, you know, this one in particular, again, seed funding, but some are different. It very much just depends. Uh, for every single one, um, they'll have a, a notice of funding opportunity and it'll just tell you what the situation is. So what, now what, those documents are usually like 50 to 80 pages long. So what, what I hear you saying is that yes, it's possible, but it don't expect it to be easy. To, oh, to I mean, none of there. it's easy. So it's like, <laughs> so people are like, whoa. But I think one of the things to do for people, I would encourage people to look into it to see if it's something that it's not free be. money. Uh, yeah. I think is the important. Yes, you yes. know, obviously, like for profit money is a lot freer yes. than government money. 
especially U.S. government money, because again, with it comes laws. And a lot of the time, those laws are not very straightforward about what you have to do. But the penalties are like, oh, if you didn't do this, oh, that's 10 years in prison. It's like, okay, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, I, no, I really want to go. The other thing that I recommend for people <clears throat> that are interested, especially if you're, well, if you're here in the U.S., don't be shy about talking to your local congressman's office. One of the things that, that we found here is, you know, I, I've talked to uh, the congressman here for, you know, for Burbank in Southern California multiple times about things that could help us out on e-sports projects. And they're very helpful. I mean, did they do everything we wanted? Nah, maybe not. But, uh, but I, I, I would always encourage people to never shy away from making sure that your Congress, your congressional representatives know about esports. To me, that's, that's, that's never a bad thing out there. Of course, and it also depends on who your, your representative is. It's not that that can make a, make a huge difference as also, well. Also, you know, state and local, uh, government, you know, all these opportunities exist at every level of government. So. What, what the, no what reason the, to discriminate. One guy that that um that we 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 didn't get a chance to do a really good recording with on season one was in the Philippines, and mm-hmm. he was out there and he went and he made he went and got the mayor of his city <clears throat> to declare that this was an esports capital of the Philippines, and it was like a yeah, cool. and and he and, you know, and he, so he you know he had these great videos. Here's the mayor and him talking about esports. And everything. And I thought, man, this guy's really clever. I mean, to go to a local, you know, to get that buy-in from a local, um, the local government was, was super smart, smart about doing things. So yeah. So don't just stop at the, the federal level here in the U.S., but even no, no matter where you are in the world, there's, I also just saw <clears throat> maybe it was yesterday, there was a, a, a short video posted on LinkedIn about one of the government ministers in Kenya talking about how Esports needs to be appreciated more than it is. It's like, whoa, that's just like that. That's a soundbite you want them to be saying out there anywhere else in the world. I, so I think Sub-Saharan Africa um, in general is very good about doing that sort of thing. Um, I don't know enough about it to know anything else other than that. But there's a lot of summits and things. And you know, great opportunity to to push esports. Europe also, um, because of the European Commission and European, the other one. Uh, so they fund basically every, you know, major nonprofit or other initiative. Um, and then the last one would be, um, oh, what are they called? Uh, Saudi Arabia is very big, obviously. Now, not an endorsement of any of these places, but. They do definitely have a large government buy-in. So I, I, w- I would even say that, you know, while the U.S. is very generous through the State Department um, to, you know, for people who are not in the U.S., and then within the U.S., there are other opportunities that are similarly generous. Um, there are other countries that do it, I don't want to say with less strings attached, but, you know, the, the PR around different things is not always fantastic. So that's actually one of the things that, you know, makes working uh, with this grant sometimes difficult, which is that we do have to explain, like, why is the Department of Homeland Security interested in esports? Now, luckily, luckily, they have, you know, 
laws on the books that say, oh, you can't spy on people. So I don't need to come up with, you know, a fake reason. There are real reasons that, you know, they can't do anything illicit. Um, but because, you know, the connection to immigration, there's obviously a lot of uh, additional stigmas and things. I would also say, and I've shared this with them before, that people are generally open to the idea that, you know, these agencies, though their past is not always great, um, can do good things. Um, so this is a great opportunity because it is community-based yes, uh, yes. at the end of the day. And then, you know, other countries that have better track records internationally, great. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up here because I, sure. I, I can keep talking about that. I just think it's so <laughs> fascinating. <clears throat> and I really like to know the thing that we didn't get to that I wanted to ask you about was women in games. Cause I sure. saw you're a, you're a women in games ambassador. Yep. You, can you quickly t- tell us about that? You, you do not look um, like the typical woman in games ambassador <laughs> that we've talked to in the past and do not take that the wrong way. No, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of different people involved. I don't know what the current, uh, mix of ambassadors is. I haven't checked recently, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of two organizations that has similar names. So there's women in gaming, uh, international, which is the U.S. based one. Uh, women in games is the, uh, British one. Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, it's just a normal sort of social advocacy organization. I don't fully understand how they work operationally because British law is different. And it's very much based in the way that that operates. But they've done like traditional nonprofit things. And I think within the UK, they've been especially good at advocating for, you know, women's inclusion in gaming as a subset of tech. Um, Now, the US does not have the same kind of like nonprofit or just even institutional commitment um, in the same way to the work that they do in the UK. So it doesn't always look the same. But, you know. It was a good organization to join. Uh, I joined it 2020 uh, because I was running a women's league at the time um, in Rainbow Six Siege. So wow. it kind of made sense. Yeah. No, that I mean, a great we, story right there. Yeah. Well, you know, don't have enough time to do everything. Um, but no, I joined because of that. And then I think that a lot of their work is based in the UK uh, for obvious reasons. But as they grow to have more... Uh, solid foundations in other regions. Asia, I think was a big one that came up. France is also, um, you know, they do similar work elsewhere, but just normal advocacy stuff. It's also a lot of networking and like career development too, which is needed. Uh, When we were talking to the, and again, sometimes I mess up, mess up the names, but I think it's women in games. Uh, Women in games is the British organization that you're talking about. We talked to um, at the end of the first season, we talked to Denise, Chantel Ortega and uh, Miao Zhang of China about them setting up the the chapter in China and, or in Asia. And it's just, it was so interesting because what I liked hearing them talk about was they, they want to support more women being at the top of, they want to support women being in the gaming industry. And so they want to make that part of the thing, but they want people, they want it to, what they call their pipeline to the top. They hmm. want women running gaming organizations. They said that's that's kind of their real goal, in which I thought was 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 super smart. Um, I mean, esports is a good old boys kind of industry, so <sighs> it's got to change. Man, man, yeah, yeah. That's a whole. That's a topic for a completely different, <laughs> a different podcast, and probably a different uh, set of, of people talking about it. 
Hey, Elliot, I really appreciate you taking a bit of time here. I've been talking about some of some sources of funding that maybe people didn't already think about. And also to, to talk a little bit about Cleveland, because I, and again, I just, I just think it's really, really interesting for people around the world to ha- have a better feeling for what it is here in the U.S. Where can people learn more about what it is that you're doing? Uh, probably the website. So esportsus.org okay. uh, well, it's for the United States Esports Association. Um, and then that connects to a bunch of other websites that we have for the particular programs. And then I'm on LinkedIn most, uh, most often. Okay. No, we'll put some links in there. No, I really appreciate Reginald connecting with you on here to have this, this kind of a conversation. So again, thanks, Elliot. Thanks for everyone for listening to the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Talk to you in the next episode. Thanks, Elliot. Yep. Thank you. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.